0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the current goings-on around the world regarding our foreign policy under the new but not-so-new-feeling leadership of Joe Biden. Clips today are from World Class, Democracy Now!, The Empire Files, The Empire Has No Clothes, Fresh Air, The Majority Report, Worldly, and The Bunker.
1: So we have a new administration and we have an old Iran. (laughs) We have an old familiar problem with respect to Iran. Tell me about the interplay, about what is going on inside Iran, perspectives on the idea that there might be a nuclear deal between the United States and again with Iran, and how should the Biden administration approach joining or not joining the old Iran nuclear deal that President Obama originally signed into? You
2: know, I think the fact that you had uh, two earlier discussions on China and Russia, and now on Iran, underscores the fact that I really think these three issues are interconnected. You cannot solve oh, them unilaterally, and you need to understand them as a package of a problem, because Iran very clearly is trying to use the China card is very much trying to use the Russia card to create a wedge with Europe, to create a wedge between Europe and the United States, and to give itself a much easier chance to negotiate this. I think the Iranian domestic situation is uh, in a truly moment of uh, composite crisis uh, because the economy is very much in shambles. Because of corruption, because of incompetence, and because of sanctions, because of uh, extreme sanctions that have been put on the regime, they have uh, simply augmented the problems that existed, structural problems that existed. Uh, There is no easy path to the salvation of the economy on the horizon. There is also a remarkable level of tension within the regime between the reformists who are increasingly marginalized. And the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, who are openly uh, angling to take over the government as the next president. The last elections were probably into the parliament in Iran, were probably the most dismal in terms of the public participation. There's a question of succession. Who should succeed Khamenei? There is an open warfare, in a sense, about this.
1: Just to remind everybody,
2: he's the supreme leader, right? Okay. He's the supreme leader, and he has been the supreme help, leader right? for 33 Ali Khamenei. And there are two candidates vying, I think, for his succession. One is his son, who, Moshtaba, that is becoming increasingly assertive in the public domain. He was very much someone in the shadow. And then there's a gentleman called Raisi, who's the head of the judiciary, and he clearly is behaving as if he is. Uh, The next anointed supreme leader, Khamenei, is clearly sick. There is open talk about his disease. And in one sense, in terms of U.S.-Iran relations, if he does pass from the scene, that might be an opening because he has been singularly, intransigently anti-American from the days he was a minor cleric to his entire 42-year career.
1: Well, let's dig deeper, both domestically and you mentioned the China and Russia cards. I want to come back to that. But let's dig first deeper domestically. So tell us a little more about the economic crisis. It's worse than ever before. And if so... What does that mean in terms of regime stability or instability?
2: I think the economy is the worst that I have certainly seen it. It is far worse than it was, at, uh, for example, during the war with Iraq. I lived in Iran at the time. I think the economy right now, their revenue is literally gone from maybe $100 billion to maybe $20 billion. Their ability to sell oil has gone to less than $2 billion, literally the last year. There has been a massive flight of capital through corruption. The regime itself talks about $20 billion having left the country over the last year alone. There is unemployment double-digit, inflation double-digit. There is no possibility of bringing in foreign investment in the energy sector that they desperately need. Tourism has, uh, is non-existent. There are strikes, labor strikes, labor strife over the country. The, the, and Adding all to all of these is the problem of uh, corona. Iran probably has, next to the United States and a couple of other countries, probably the worst record in coping with corona in terms of the number of death, the number of people who have it. And Khamenei, the supreme leader, decided three weeks ago uh, unilaterally that Iran is not going to import any vaccines from Europe. And the only vaccine that they're going to be purchasing – is Sputnik? That right? Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, with no expertise, and you know, the equivalent of Iran's uh, scientific community, all came out against them, virtually all. But that's the nature of authoritarian regimes. Right. What Mr. Putin says goes in Russia. What Mr. Khamenei says goes in Iran.
1: Right. So that would make me think that they would be desperate to do a deal with the Biden administration because of sanctions. But my guess is it's more complicated than that. Tell me how you think that domestic political situation affects their calculus about re-entering into a negotiation with the
2: Biden administration. To me, it was very clear from the moment that the elections were called in favor of the Biden administration and long before the ex-president accepted it, the Iranian regime accepted the results and began to behave as if there will be a Biden administration. And they were hoping for a quick turnaround and a quick end to the sanctions. Right. They were under disillusion that uh, Biden is going to come in and overnight is going to have overturn the sanction regime and open the floodgates to funds. I never thought this would happen. I never thought this would be a wise policy for the United States, even a possible policy for the United States. And because of the way they have behaved on the nuclear deal in the past, the minute they thought they would be negotiating with the Biden administration for a nuclear deal, they began to create realities on the ground. They began to export diet enrichment, They began to add new centrifuges. They just did something that Europe announced it's a dangerous breach of their agreement. They created metal uranium that has no peaceful purpose. These are very much in line with the way they have done it in the past. They create reality on the ground, and then they negotiate. I think they overplayed their hand. I think they have clearly overplayed their hand. They are desperate for a deal, but they want a bigger deal more release of funds than I think the uh, Biden administration is willing or capable or should uh, let them have.
3: Can you respond to the attack, the U.S. bombing of Syria?
4: Yes, the Biden administration, I think, President Biden himself specifically felt strongly that because of the uh, attacks in Iraq earlier, that a response was warranted. But what I think many people are fearing is that very quickly, the Biden administration is falling into the same old patterns of before of uh, responding to this and that without having a clear strategy that actually would extract us from these various conflicts. Uh, and actually paved the way for much more productive diplomacy. Um, The idea that this actually would help us with uh, the diplomacy with Iran, for instance, seems really difficult to understand, mindful of the fact that we are now in a situation uh, in which the Iranians have rejected the offer from the Europeans to come to the talks precisely because of these attacks, because of other measures have been done, uh, which means that these first two months uh, of the Biden administration that could have been used for really productively laying the groundwork for new talks seem to instead have been used to just fall into the old patterns. Uh, And this is quite concerning because at the end of the day, uh, reviving the JCPOA is another promise that the Biden administration uh, gave during the campaign and said that it would pursue diligently.
3: Were you surprised by these attacks and explain exactly where they took place in Syria?
4: took place in uh, in eastern part of Syria. These are various groups uh, that uh, the Biden administration describes as pro-Iranian and certainly seem to have a a degree of support from Iran, whether they're under the command of Iran uh, is uh, not as clear. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, the you know the fact that this was said the same day as the Biden administration decided not to pursue sanctions on MBS again seems to suggest that the Biden administration is more concerned at this point of making sure that it doesn't upset certain allies in the region, doesn't pay a political cost at home uh, for uh, pursuing compromise uh, with Iran over the nuclear issue, which I think sends a very, very concerning message. Because at the end of the day, in order for the JCPOA to be revived, both the Iranians and the U.S. side have to give compromises, and they're going to have to pay a political price at home. The Obama administration did so. The Rouhani government did so. There is no escaping from that. But if at already this stage we're signaling that we're not ready to do so and were we too concerned about those political costs, that really sets a question mark as to whether the political will exists for seeing these uh, negotiations on the nuclear program come to a completion.
3: Congressman Rokhana, your response to the bombing of Syria?
2: this is not an ambiguous case. The administration's actions are clearly illegal under the United States law and under international law. We do not have any authorization of military force to go into Syria. In fact, President Obama tried and then backed off in getting that authorization. We do not have any authorization of military force to attack Iran. The idea that this was an imminent attack on U.S. self-defense are simply not borne out by the facts. And under international law for self-defense, we have to go to the United Nations. The administration did not do that. So my concern is that this president ran on ending endless wars, ran on respecting the United States and international law. And these actions clearly violate both.
3: So, Trita Parsi, um, if you could talk about the European Union, um, uh, Iran rejecting an offer by the EU uh, to hold direct talks with the U.S. on the nuclear deal after um, the U.S. attack on eastern Syria, the significance of this?
4: It's a very unfortunate decision by the Iranians. I mean, I think it would have been much better if they accepted this invitation. But at the same time, it is not a surprising decision. In fact, one of um, President Biden's own senior officials, Wendy Sherman, who is now um, uh, going to be confirmed next week or having hearings to become the deputy secretary of state, she was a lead negotiator under Obama for the nuclear deal, said in 2019 that the idea that the Iranians would come to the table and talk to the United States Without some sanctions relief, meaning that the United States would continue to violate the JCPOA and yet the Iranians would come, was extremely unlikely. It's not clear to me why the Biden administration has chosen a strategy that some of its own senior officials earlier on had deemed to be extremely unlikely to succeed. So it's not surprising. It's very negative. And now we're in a worse situation. There's going to be a fight potentially today at the IAEA Board of Governors about whether to censor Iran for some of its reductions um, of obligations under the JCPOA while the United States continues to completely disregard all of its obligations. So these are all the type of wrong measures and, and um, steps that should be taken at this stage of diplomacy. At this stage, there should be goodwill measures. There should be positive signals of intent in order to create the best possible circumstances for diplomacy to start. Now we're having the opposite.
3: Can you explain, Trita, um, uh, Iran's demand that the U.S. end sanctions before returning to negotiations? Explain what the U.S. sanctions against Iran are and how they're affecting the people there.
4: Well, the Iranians have now suffered tremendously under sanctions that the President Trump put in place in 2018 and 2019 and, and onwards. Uh, These have been devastating to the Iranian economy. In fact, President Trump intensified those uh, once COVID broke out, seeing the pandemic as a way to further enhance the impact of sanctions. Um, And this means including blocking Iran's ability to get IMF loans uh, for the purpose of fighting the, uh, the virus. So the Iranians have suffered tremendously under these sanctions for the last couple of years. I think part of the reason why they're fearful of going to the table without getting some indication... Not all sanctions need to be lifted uh, uh, from their perspective, but some indication that the U.S. is going to lift sanctions is that otherwise they fear that the talks may not succeed. They will get blamed for uh, the breakdown of talks. They will be seen as being at fault, even though the United States under Biden has not changed trump's position of maximum pressure so the us doesn't even come back into the deal but manages to shift the blame onto the iranians i think this is part of their fear i think at the same time demanding that all sanctions be lifted which they did earlier on is completely unrealistic what is happening right now is that the iranian demand is that the us side promises that once the us is inside of the deal it will lift sanctions. But it's also very difficult to see how the U.S. could reject that, mindful of the fact that once it is inside a deal, it has to lift the sanctions. Otherwise, it will be in complete violation of the deal.
5: After being in office for barely one month, Biden has authorized his first military strike. In one fell swoop, he managed to attack three countries at once—Syria, Iraq, and Iran—risking a larger war with all of them. On February 25th, U.S. warplanes bombed the Syrian town of Bukamal, killing as many as 22 people. The attack was illegal under international law and under U.S. law by carrying out acts of war without congressional approval. While not targeting Syrian forces, the raid violated Syria's sovereignty by carrying out a strike on its soil without knowledge or approval by the country's government. Tensions are already high with Syria because of draconian U.S. sanctions and repeated military strikes by Israel against the Syrian state, which it would not do without approval by the U.S. In addition to an act of aggression against Syria, Biden claims the target of the raid was an Iran-backed militia. The phrase Iran-backed militia is imperialist code for Iraqi militants that oppose the ongoing U.S. occupation of their country. The corporate media uncritically repeated Iran-backed militia with no evidence. Even the Pentagon's most loyal stenographer, the New York Times, had to admit, quote, "...little is known about the group, including whether it is backed by Iran." Although no evidence exists to link this group to Iran, Biden said the airstrikes were intended to send a message to Iran that, "quote you cannot act with impunity. Be careful. It's disgusting that Biden thinks the best way to communicate with Iran is blowing up human beings. And what impunity is he even talking about? Trump is the one who shredded the nuclear deal and slapped hundreds of sanctions on the country. And after all that, Iran is still willing to talk. Biden claims this act of war is justified punishment for Iran being responsible somehow for a minor rocket attack in Iraq by Iraqis. Again, the U.S. manages to take away all the agency of Iraqis who are angry at the U.S. for still being there after killing one million people and destroying the entire country. I'd say it's the United States which bears responsibility for the inevitable attacks on its bases. Bombing Iraqis anywhere creates the potential for further escalation of anti-U.S. attacks in Iraq. If Biden's policy is going to be launching a major retaliation any time Iraqis attack an American base, which will likely only increase in response to Biden's aggression, before we know it, we'll be back in a full-scale war in Iraq. And considering the U.S. was defeated by the Iraqi resistance not too long ago, risking a reboot of that war seems like a terrible idea. Hmm perhaps the best idea would be to stop the U.S. occupation of Iraq because it seems obvious that as long as U.S. forces are there, they will be targeted. Also, this most recent strike is way too similar to the events that began last year's war escalation with Iran. In January 2020, Iraqi resistance groups launched rockets at U.S. bases in their country. When one of these rockets killed a U.S. private mercenary, just like the one last month, the Pentagon responded by bombing five separate locations in Iraq and Syria that killed dozens of people. This prompted Iraqi protesters to besiege the U.S. embassy. And in retaliation, Trump ordered the assassination of top Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, a horrific war crime that was carried out in broad daylight as Soleimani was coming to Iraq for peace negotiations. Trump belligerently brought us to the precipice of war but Iran's calculated response opened the door for de-escalation. This is why Biden's actions are so dangerous. The situation is so fraught and unpredictable, events could quickly spiral out of control. Ludicrously, the Pentagon claims the intention of Biden's strike was to de-escalate tensions. See, this is the doublespeak of the U.S. empire. When we bomb, it's for peace. And when it comes to so-called enemy states like Iran or Syria— the political and media establishment instantly become one voice to advocate for it. Today, aside from a few dissenters in Congress, there is a bipartisan chorus defending Biden's actions. It was all done in self-defense, they say. The imperial hubris of the United States is grotesque and shameful. Bombing any country at wants with total impunity, killing anyone, anywhere with zero consequences— Lashing out abroad while leaving its people to rot in the streets at home. And then having the sheer audacity to claim moral authority to do it all over again.
6: Afghanistan. America's oldest war, or not America's longest running war, uh, and possibly slated now to go on even longer, depending on what the Biden administration chooses to do. Uh, Joe Biden, right now, the way things stand, the troops are going to be out of the country by May 1st. That is the withdrawal deadline. That is what we are moving towards. The problem is the Taliban is not abiding by the terms of the ceasefire. Uh, they are continuing to wage war across the country. They've spread closer to Kandahar, a very important provincial capital, Uh, They've moved closer to it than they have in a decade. Uh, And there's a general sense of despair that's taken over Afghanistan analysts, because it appears now that no matter what the United States does, no matter what decision Joe Biden makes, Uh, the Taliban are going to end up, uh, if not in a very strong, if not in complete control of the country, then certainly in a very strong position. Uh, It's a troubling situation, given that it puts us not that far removed from where we were in 2001 when we launched the war in the first place, Uh, except, of course, hundreds of thousands of people have died since then. Uh, So very keen here to see what Joe Biden ends up doing on Afghanistan. Uh, Dan, where do you see this going?
7: Uh, So it it seems to me that it's going to be uh, what one of these issues where Biden is trying to, to slow walk the decision-making uh, when he doesn't really have the time to do that. Uh, we were seeing this on some other issues as well. Uh, we may be able to talk about that in a minute, uh, but on this, the the deadline is, is quite hard and fast. May 1st is the deadline that we've committed to for getting everybody out, getting all us forces out of Afghanistan. And so there's, there's really no, as far as I can see, there's not a good argument for delaying that departure because keeping them there will simply make them targets of new Taliban attacks. And the, the fact that the Taliban is in such a strong position is a reflection of how badly the war has gone for us. Uh, the fact that the, the Afghan government can't actually defeat them in the field. And that if we continue to throw people into that, conflict, uh, it's not going to change anything. We weren't able to defeat them when we had over a hundred thousand troops. We're not going to be able we're certainly not going to be able to defeat them now. And so the the resistance that we're seeing popping up all over the place from the foreign policy establishment and from some parts of the media uh, is based on the fact that nobody wants to admit that we lost and we lost a long time ago. And so I think the, the best thing that Biden can do is to to face up to that, to acknowledge it. And to tell the public that staying in Afghanistan any longer uh, doesn't serve the national interest. it does not uh, It's not going to fix anything in Afghanistan if we stay longer. And we're simply delaying the inevitable, uh, which is unfortunately uh, going to be a Taliban victory or at least a partial victory on their part.
8: Yeah, I think that the important thing to remember about this May 1 deadline looming and some of the politics around it, is that the Afghan study group that was congressionally mandated to recommend uh, how to move forward uh, to Congress and and the president have offered a proposal in which the White House uh, negotiates an extension of that May 1 deadline with the Taliban. The idea being that they wouldn't unilaterally abrogate the The deadline on May 1st, but work out something with the Taliban to say, okay, we're already behind on the timetable that was outlined under the U.S.-Taliban agreement. So let's give us six months um, and then we can get this thing back on track and then we will leave by the end of the year. And that seems to be the sort of establishment, you know, African study group uh, recommendation that the Biden team, appears to be leaning towards. The only problem is, is that, first of all, they'd have to get the Taliban to agree. Uh, There are some, there are some, uh, there's some belief that they could get some pressure on the Taliban from international partners, you know, whether it be Russia, um, European partners, even Iran to agree. um, And that would give this sort of um, the, the question, you know, the, the ask a little heft, that's just a few months away. Um, the, 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 the ability for the, the US to get some sort of approval from the Taliban at this point, with the Taliban having the leverage over us, um, is, is pretty slim. And so they would end up probably unilaterally abrogating that, that May 1 deadline anyway, which would most likely end in an escalation of violence and the conditions on the ground, which would lead the Biden administration and all their friends in Washington to say, see, things are so bad on the ground here, we can't possibly leave. So this is, this is a real dangerous trajectory I think we're on. Um, and I don't, I, all the indications from the mainstream, um, chatarati, uh, the blob, so to speak, Weighing in on this over the last two weeks is that the, that Biden should stay; that she, he should leave some force there indefinitely. This isn't this isn't good for us.
6: No, and I I think the Taliban may come back to the negotiating table, right? And we can certainly, you know, beat them in an air war. We can beat them in a ground war if we need to. Here's the problem is we've been trying to do that for so long. And right now the Taliban is in an extraordinarily good position. As I was saying during the intro, uh, you don't fight in Afghanistan during the winter. Everybody knows that. But once that snow thaws, once it gets warmer, uh, once the spring comes, they're going to be back at it again. They're going to launch another offensive and they're probably going to push uh, even deeper into Afghanistan, given how weak the army has proven, given how frankly weak the government there has always been. I mean, we created an extraordinarily flimsy government, has been a corrupt government, as has been shown time and time again. Uh, we created essentially an opium den, and uh, and it's been been rich for something like the Taliban. And look, what I'm struck by is that. This was mopped up essentially by the end of 2001, right? You guys remember Jay Kofor Black went in there and the CIA went in there. And the Taliban and Al Qaeda were driven out pretty quickly. And Osama bin Laden fled to Tora Bora. Uh, and the Taliban, what was left of it, fled to Pakistan. And that was thought to be the end of the actual war phase, and what we've been litigating for two decades ever since is the aftermath, is the peace and keeping it that way. And meanwhile, Pakistan has only gotten more unstable to the point that last year Afghanistan was thinking about closing the border with Pakistan, <laughs> not the other way around. They were worried about Pakistan destabilizing them, uh, and and you know things have only gotten worse in terms of the, the Taliban pushing in now. Uh, it's. I just think it's a striking indictment on our entire policy over there, right? The fact that after all this time, after all these lives that have been lost, after the countless money that we've spent over there, the you know the, the facilities that we've tried to build only for them to fall apart, uh, this is where we are. I mean, we could very much, regardless of what we do, regardless of whether we stay for another 50 years, we could end up with the Taliban back in control of Afghanistan. And that isn't just... We went about this in slightly the wrong way, right That isn't just we need to to tinker here and there. this is what the Hawks always claim about Iraq. Well, the occupation was flawed, but if we hadn't debathified the entire country or something, it might have still worked out No, this is a policy wide indictment uh, this is a this is a um, a damning of our entire. A war on terrorism and it's depressing you know for those of us who lived through 911 for whom afghanistan was maybe the one just war that we launched afterwards it's it's depressing to see us in this position
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Bomba's Socks. They've been supporting us for years, and I have been enjoying their socks the whole time because they make the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. And I've been a fan of soft socks for as long as I can remember. I don't really think I'm alone in that. But... Bombas are the socks that came along to teach me that quality socks go far beyond softness. They are downright high-tech in their methods of delivering comfort. But that's not the real selling point. Bombas are a certified B Corp dedicated to giving back to the most vulnerable members of our society. For every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks, and counting— through their nationwide network of 3,000 giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, a small comfort that's especially important right now. So give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash best. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash best for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash Best.
9: So let's start with the deal that Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Can you describe the deal to us?
10: The deal itself is simple, but it, it kind of sets off this uh, this cascade of other things which are not so simple. But the deal basically says uh, the Taliban won't kill any Americans and we won't attack the Taliban. Uh, And if, if all goes well and the Taliban agree not to support any kind of terrorism against the United States or not to allow terrorists in the country or any kind of bases, the United States will leave and go to zero and take out all of its forces by May 1st. And so at the, at the present moment today, The U.S. has about 2,500 troops there, and then there's about 5,000 other NATO, European troops who are there, but who are kind of waiting on the U.S. to make a decision. So there's about 7,500 troops in the country right now.
9: So NATO's decision isn't totally contingent on whether we pull out by May 1st?
10: It's not, but they're they're all kind of watching. I, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that if the U.S. doesn't stay, then the Europeans aren't going to stay. And so I think w- whatever Biden decides effectively is going to decide the future of the of the Western effort in that country.
9: Trump had a way has a way of defying norms, breaking conventions um, did he define did he define norms and conventions when he when his administration negotiated this deal?
10: well they did <laughs> they did for sure for sure i i mean the first the most obvious thing about this agreement uh, is that the, the Afghan government was left out of it. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the reasons for that are kind of complicated, but, but essentially, you know, the, the U S was, they were negotiating with the Taliban uh, about whether or not to remove their troops, not with the Afghan government, which is, which is hosting the troops. And of course the Taliban, the, the guys they're sitting across from at the table, you know these guys were, were deemed terrorists. You know, and 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 they these are the guys that 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 gave sanctuary to Osama bin Laden uh, uh, before the 9-11 attacks, and so th- these are people that we didn't even acknowledge. We didn't acknowledge their legitimacy, and uh, you know we we're actively trying to kill them, uh, and and now we're sitting across the table from them. And 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 the other thing that was very pretty unconventional about the way that this negotiation happened was. The, the U.S. diplomats are trying to negotiate a kind of a schedule for a withdrawal. And, you know, there's a certain amount of bluffing involved, which is if we don't get the deal we want, uh, we're not going to pull out. But, but while they were doing that over the course of 2019 and early 2020, President Trump was just kind of unilaterally announcing these troop withdrawals. I'm going to pull everybody out or I'm going to we're going to go down to we're going to go down to 7000 troops starting now. And he didn't consult anybody. And didn't didn't even necessarily tell his negotiators that he was doing that. So he was like literally kind of taking their sticks away from them at the table as they were doing this. And so the whole thing was kind of unconventional. But there's an agreement. Uh, it was signed in February of last year, February 2020, and it says that the United States will pull out all of its forces by May 1st. Um, and what's what's remarkable about it is is that. Since February 2020, no American soldiers have been killed in Afghanistan. So so the Taliban have, have, in fact, held to their word.
9: Okay, but in a way, this is a very narrow agreement. It's between the Taliban and the U.S. The Afghan government was not included in it. The agreement says the Taliban won't kill Americans. Done. But the Taliban are stepping up their killings of Afghans. I mean, they're... They're, they're increasing their power, they're encroaching on cities. There's been more and more targeted murders of women, of journalists, of educated people uh, who are considered like the educated elite, of people who have spoken out against the, the Taliban in the past. So, I mean, they're not, they're not acquiescing you know, to anything except, okay, we're not going to kill you guys, we're going to kill the Afghans, it, but that's not part of the deal
10: it's not part of the deal and it's it's a terrible situation it's a terrible situation and it's difficult not to conclude when you stand back and look at it that the the real purpose of this agreement um and i think president trump even said this was just just get out the us is going to get out um and and leave the afghan government and the taliban to each other um which which i i think almost certainly means a lot more violence and probably something like civil war but but that's that's what's that's the kind of subtext for all this. So so the, the Taliban, the leaders are sitting at the table and they're negotiating with the Afghan government right now about some kind of peace deal, you know, ceasefire, some kind of interim government, the thing that's supposed to end the war. But at the same time they're doing that, they've launched this very aggressive assassination campaign, uh, which is basically targeting the elites and the educated classes, the, the people and, and the women, uh, the, the people who have benefited most and the people uh, who have really stepped to the, to the, to the fore since, since 9/11. it's the 9/11 generation, um, the, the post-2001 generation, which basically the United States is enabled. And so it's educated people, it's women, it's women's rights activists, it's people with master's degrees and PhDs and they're targeting them judges, lawyers, journalists, aid workers, uh, one after the other. So I think we're at pretty close to 500 assassinations since the peace agreement was signed. And just yesterday, for instance, in Jalalabad, which is a city east of Kabul, three women journalists were killed, were murdered, uh, three young women. And and that to me is the, that's emblematic. I mean, these are, they're women in a country that is, is, um, doesn't really recognize, fully recognize women's rights. And they're kind of out there and they're, and they're risking their lives. And they're, you know, they're fighting the good fight. And, and three of them just got killed almost certainly by the Taliban. So that, so that's what's happening. So I think if you, if we stand back and we look at these negotiations, these peace talks, we think, okay, it's a race. Are they going to make a deal or is the, or is the Afghan state going to collapse first? before this Taliban onslaught. And that that's what's so kind of disturbing about the whole thing.
6: We rarely ever talk about anything good on this show. It's almost always doom and gloom. <laughs> The first to get through, uh, you know, wars and genocides and, and the whole thing. But this time we may have something that may be positive. Uh, President Joe Biden has announced that he intends to. Yank all, as he put it, quote, all American support for offensive operations in the war on Yemen, including relevant arms sales. Uh, So that isn't just a disincentive to the Saudis who have been bombing Yemen since the Obama administration to stop doing so. Uh, That isn't just a verbal condemnation. That's what we on this podcast have been calling for really since the beginning. And that is a total end to all support, Uh, a clear signal from America that this kind of behavior is no longer going to be accepted. It comes after years of a brutal conflict that have killed over 100,000 people. Uh, There's been a cholera epidemic in Yemen. There's been a famine. Uh, The civilian population there has been absolutely brutalized, largely by the Saudi and UAE efforts at bombing the country to try to drive back the Houthi rebels, which have had untold civilian casualties and have created untold horrors. Uh, So finally, we're getting out and Biden is also delisting the Houthi rebels as a terrorist organization, which would have blackballed them. Uh, Another sign that he doesn't intend to decide with the Saudis anymore. Another sign that he just wants to get out. Uh, So it certainly seems like good news anyway. Uh, Dan, you can sometimes be a little little gloomier than I am. Do you have a way to put a negative spin on this?
7: Well, try try as I might, I don't think so Uh, because I I think this has been, this is exactly, I mean, pretty much exactly what I've been calling for uh, for a long time. Uh, it's what I was hoping the Biden administration would do on coming into office. Uh, and there, there were some strong indications that that is what they were going to do. Uh, the The thing that has actually surprised me a little bit is how quickly they did it, because they, they probably could have gotten away with dragging their feet a bit more uh, on both of these decisions. And the, the fact that they did it, they did both of them within the first three weeks of uh, Biden taking office uh, is a, a very encouraging sign that uh, they're... They're not only serious about ending our involvement in the war, but that they're actually interested in trying to bring the the entire war to a close. Uh, And uh, paired with, uh, or in in connection with those other announcements, they also announced that there is going to be a new U.S. special envoy for Yemen, uh, Tim Lenderking, uh, who has significant experience in the region. And uh, that also signals that their determination to try to uh, actually get a ceasefire and not just... uh, wash our hands of it but to actually try to to establish some measure of peace uh for the entire country uh so that it's it's a these are very uh, good decisions i think i joked on twitter uh that it's a bit disorienting to have good foreign policy decisions from the government day after day uh, because it is so unusual and uh, especially with respect to yemen uh it it is we, we haven't seen anything like this obviously in almost six years so it's uh it's, they're, they're very good steps in the right direction, and I, I'm hoping uh, that Biden will follow up on those with more sustained effort to try to uh, pressure the Saudis and the UAE to end their campaign.
8: The one thing that troubled me about the announcement regarding ending U.S. assistance for Yemen was that Biden immediately followed that up with somewhat of a caveat saying that the U.S. will continue to defend Saudi Arabia against Iranian attacks on its interests, its sovereignty, and its people and territory. And so that leaves two questions. One, we might be ending U.S. assistance for offensive operations in Yemen, but continue U.S. assistance or weapon sales to Saudi Arabia for everything else. And if that everything else includes Protecting itself from Iranian attacks does that mean Iranian-backed Houthis attacking Saudi Arabia in Yemen? I mean, I know that sounds complicated, but what I'm trying to say here is how is the how is the Biden administration parsing out this end of assistance, um, yet continuing its assistance to, to to Saudi Arabia? Will we be continuing to sell? weapons to Saudi that will continue to be used against uh, civilians in Yemen, for example. Uh, where does Where is the line drawn? He wasn't very clear about that. And, and to me, that just signals that, you know, he is under a certain amount of pressure to be tough on Iran, and there are people within his administration and Congress and in, in interest groups that are fluttering around that want him to continue to see Iran as the major threat in the Middle East. And so he had to add that to his foreign policy speech, which is concerning to me because it it shows an amount of pressure that he's under to continue to, to rattle the sabers, but also arm Saudi Arabia, UAE, and other Gulf states. And these weapons, as we know, end up being used... Against civilians in places like Yemen. So it's not all clear to me how this war will end if we continue to sell arms to these people and not turn the spigot off completely.
11: administration is taking a lot of heat and I think rightly so for their backing off of holding holding the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman accountable for his orchestrating of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and uh, Jen Saki is on her heels trying to defend this uh, position that's clearly meant to to appease the leaders of Saudi Arabia and maintain that relationship based on arms sales and of course that sweet, sweet oil. Here's Jen Psaki uh, yesterday, I believe.
2: Back on Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. during the campaign, obviously former Vice President Joe Biden was very well aware of the history of the U.S. government in terms of who they sanction and who they haven't, but yet he said we're going to make them pay the price and make them the pariah that they are. How does this come anywhere close to his pledge to Americans in November of 2019 at
12: that debate? Well, first, the president has been clear to his team, and he's been clear publicly that the relationship is not going to look like what it's looked like in the past. And even before the release of the port report on Friday, we had taken actions as an administration to make that clear through diplomatic conversations to our partners and allies in the region and through our actions. And that includes... Uh, a change in how we are communicating with the Saudis, counterpart to counterpart, going back to uh, that appropriate line of communication. It includes not holding back and raising concerns about human rights abuses. We did see last month that Saudi Arabia did release two uh, dual national prisoners and women's rights activists. It includes uh, pulling back from our support from the war in Yemen. But it's important to also note that there are areas where we have an important relationship with Saudi Arabia, intelligence sharing, uh, also helping defend against the threats and the attacks that they are getting, um, uh, you know, getting from uh, bad actors uh, right at their doorstep. And, you know, global diplomacy requires um, holding uh, countries accountable when needed, but also acting in the national interest of the United States. And that's exactly what the president's trying to do.
11: that she said holding countries accountable there, right? Notice she also said pulling back in our support for the war on Yemen. So, when she mentions that the United States is still going to be providing support for rocket attacks right. along the Saudi border, what that means is we are still sort of supporting the war in and supporting
13: the war. in And, and the,
11: uh, notice also how yeah, I, I may have said this out loud already, but I want to reiterate the point holding countries accountable. So not holding an individual accountable, not sanctioning MBS for the fact that he hired a gang of his buddies, basically, to murder and dismember a United States resident columnist for the Washington Post, not holding him accountable at all. And then this, like, liberals, be real here. If Trump had done this, you know that every network would be criticizing him to the nines every single day. And they should. And we should be doing the same for Joe Biden, especially because he said his stance on foreign policy in Saudi Arabia would be markedly different. And it's just not. And that he'd hold them accountable.
12: Mm hmm.
13: I mean, w- w- not just this. I mean, journalists should be speaking out. I mean, this is such an egregious example of our – I mean, that, that's what I'm finding with all these decisions in the last, like, month, is Biden is revealing himself without the cover of a Republican Senate, which, you know, I'm still not convinced he wanted to win in uh, in Georgia. Uh, without the cover of a Republican Senate, he's revealing himself in every single way. And also, the mo- as in a moment of crisis, people are just more conscious of these, like – these decisions that used to happen behind closed doors were too complicated for folks to really wrap their heads around but this was such an egregious egregious situation a disgusting example of how we are completely beholden to certain foreign interests and then match that with like say the Netanyahu nomination i think that kind of i mean this is this is just a blatant example of how uh the biden administration is 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 not understanding like all eyes are open now. It's not just the progressives. It's, it's Democrats. It's the world. It's journalists. I don't know. I yeah, I mean, I don't know well, what to say at
11: this point. Like, well, luckily, look, I mean, you mentioned journalists speaking out. Of course, they should do that more. And, you know, our frustration with the media uh, knows well, it was against downs. one of their own. I mean, it was a Washington Post reporter. Like, well, the uh, Washington Post yeah. did write an op ed about this. Right. I believe yeah. their opinion. Oh, here we go. Uh-oh. Oh,
13: <laughs> um, <laughs> what
11: happened? <laughs> they, I believe that they did speak out against us so, like that's one of their own. Right. But all media organizations should be speaking out against us. And and let's be real. We have seen a more conciliatory attitude by the media towards Joe Biden um, because he's brought things back to status quo. And um, yeah. uh, the, the best he's doing is hold the line. And although, the line, yes, I I the story, though, like the lines change, you can't go back to Obama post Trump. You can't. It can't. It's you,
13: you might have been able to get away with that. You did get away with that before Trump. But now it's like the trenches were gushing with blood. Everybody sees what's going on. And I mean, listen, like Jeff Bezos should speak out. It's his paper.
11: Yeah. And and look, and and, and I said, look, the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus is a very good bill. Let's be real. And they did learn a lesson in that area. But in terms of foreign policy, Tony Blinken and Joe Biden and an entire foreign policy oper- apparatus has done nothing of substance, including their stance on the embassy remaining in Jerusalem and Israel including what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia and as i mentioned these like semantics points about defending Saudi Arabia's borders and then ostensibly ending support for the war in Yemen are very key we pointed this out when they initially made the announcement how precise this language was and you're seeing why that precision was so important because and, and- we are still supporting that genocide in in some ways
13: and the strikes um you know, not consulting with Congress fully, you know, basically issuing a memo.
11: It's And an- an- just another statistic I heard this morning, it blows my mind. I think 50% of Yemenis are uh, experiencing hunger right now. 50% of Yemenis are experiencing hunger right now. And this is in large part due to what we have done to- and the support that we provided th- throughout the region. Support for Saudi Arabia, as a nation state, right now, in any fashion, is supporting genocide. So why we we may have pushed back and pulled back some of our arms and some of our arm sales that are specifically going for those purposes. Even uh, a, a support for Saudi Arabia in terms of defense is still buttressing this effort in other ways. And so let's be real: uh, the, the the changes from how donald trump treated saudi arabia Mohammed bin salman and how joe biden is currently treating them and, and tony blinken in that administration it's it's been negligible it's not been enough at this point and um that the, the backlash that they're receiving about this uh, mbs decision or lack of decision is is indicative yeah. of
4: that
0: We've just heard clips today starting with World Class explaining the current state of Iran. Democracy Now! discussed the bombing of Syria. The Empire Files looked specifically at the destabilizing effects of bombing Syria. The Empire Has No Clothes lamented at the state of the Afghanistan war from the now-aged anti-war movement perspective. Fresh Air discussed the negotiations with the Taliban that happened under Trump. The Empire Has No Clothes also looked at the hopeful news about reducing the war in Yemen. And the Majority Report criticized Biden and the media for not holding Mohammed bin Salman accountable for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Worldly speaking with Senator Chris Murphy about the future of Saudi Arabia and America's proxy wars. The Empire Files looked at two arms sales made under Biden to authoritarian groups from South America to Egypt— and The Bunker looked at the future of the Middle East in a more holistic way, even remembering to account for the economic and immigration impacts of climate change. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or request a Financial Hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear briefly from you.
1: Hi Jay, my name is Roy, calling from rural Washington State. I just finished listening to episode 1402, Racism or Classism, It was eye-opening and made perfect sense that we have a CAST system. You wove the episodes of the different speakers together in one of the best ways I've heard in years of listening to you. Thank you so much, and keep up the great work.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to Roy for his kind words and to Aaron, our researcher, for her efforts on helping to pull that show together on cast and the invention of race. Uh, I I agree. I I think it was a pretty good show. So what I have for you today is, first of all, some classic Biden. Just as part of the research that we were doing for the show, Dion came across this clip, and it's just worth remembering who we're dealing with. Joe Biden has been, like, he's been there, but he's been sort of in the background, and he's done a lot of things and said a lot of things in such a way that it's possible to have never known he said these things, or it's possible to have known about it, but he said so many things that you've forgotten. So Dion came across this clip from just over 10 years ago, which is worth remembering.
10: Do you have faith in President Karzai?
14: Look, um, I know, I've know i known President Karzai for a long, long time. Uh, I think he's in a very difficult position. I have... You know, we could argue that there could be a stronger leader, but you deal with the hand you're dealt, as the old saying goes. And we are all on the same page now for the first time. The American military, the American civilians, the administration, the Congress, the NATO, our allies, the, uh, the Afghanis, that here's the deal. You gotta step up your governance capability. We're gonna help train your folks. You gotta step up we cannot want peace and security more than you want it in your villages and in your homes. We're gonna help train you. In the meantime, we've set a and you know, a lot of a lot of our critics say you shouldn't set a deadline to get out. The reason we needed to do that is the same reason we did in Afghanistan. We had to say, look, you gotta step up, Matt. Let me tell you, we're gonna start Daddy's gonna start to take the training wheels off in October I mean in uh next uh, July so you better practice writing I
0: know <laughs> I know if you're like me you start hearing that clip and you're like okay I mean this is some some classic some classic stuff and then you get to that last line or two and the bile comes up in your mouth a little bit it is so gross I mean I mean we've been talking this last week about old school racism and old school depictions in Dr. Seuss books. And in the bonus show we did, we, we touched on that as well, but we also brought in a discussion about the artist uh, Hergé, who did the Tintin comics, which Americans know about, but they're more popular elsewhere. And some of those old school comics of Tintin are just the worst kind of colonialist propaganda, so much so that the artist sort of didn't realize what he was doing and felt bad for it later. But that's the level of grossness that a hundred years ago, an artist did a colonizer's depiction of the Congo. And for Joe Biden to refer to the relationship between America and Afghanistan as daddy's going to take the training wheels off, like we just haven't come that far we might as well be walking around in our khaki adventuring ensemble and you know, treating the natives as lazy, pathetic subhumans who we need to try to civilize. I mean, it is just not that big of a difference when you hear Joe Biden talk that way. Hopefully, he's made a little progress in the last 10 years, but... It's hard to say if he's made progress in his actual thinking or if he just doesn't say those sorts of things out loud anymore. Okay, next up, I'm going to take on the monumental task of trying to interpret Joe Biden for you. Uh, I'm not looking forward to it, but... As we were doing the research for this episode, I wanted to know what was up with the Uyghurs in China, and and have we said anything? Have we done anything? What's what's Joe Biden's take on the Uyghurs recently? And a news story came up from a couple of weeks ago that was only being covered in the right-wing media about Joe Biden and his position on the Uyghurs. So we just went straight to the source. We found what he said about it, and it's not pretty. But not for the reasons you're fearing. It's not that what he said was particularly terrible. It's just that he doesn't speak very well, to the point that he needs an interpreter. So let's have a listen to this, and I'll take a stab at it.
14: You yeah.
4: just talked to China's president. Yes, for two hours. What about the, the Uyghurs? What about we, human rights abuses? We in China?
14: must speak up for human rights. It's who we are. We can't. my comment to him was. And I know him well, and he knows me well. We're a two-hour conversation. You talked about this too. him. I talked about this too, and that's not so much refugee. But I talked about. It. I said, "Look, you know, Chinese leaders. If you know anything about Chinese history, it has always been the time when China has been victimized by the outer world is when they haven't been unified at home. So the central, oh, to vastly overstated, the central principle." of Xi Jinping is that there must be a united, tightly controlled China. And he uses his rationale for the things he does based on that. I point out to him, no American president can be sustained as a president if he doesn't reflect the values of the United States. And so the idea, I'm not going to speak out against what he's doing in Hong Kong, what he's doing with the Uyghurs in western mountains of of, uh, China, and Taiwan trying to end the one China policy by making it forceful.
0: I, I said, and by the he said he he gets it. So I'm going to mercifully pause it here because this is a good enough point to to stop and reflect on what we just heard and understand that what is being reported in the right wing press and also just sort of tweeted about by people who are watching, who are expressing things like, "Wait a second, what did he just say? Did he say he's not going to criticize China about the weaker?s That it's it's just a cultural difference, I th- or maybe he gets to that in a moment. And that is not my interpretation, but I do understand why people are coming to that interpretation. I think that in the right wing media, they are giving it the least generous possible interpretation in order to come to that conclusion, but. He clearly is not speaking very well on this subject, even though what he does say indicates that he knows a lot about it. Here's my take. He starts off by speaking forcefully about how we must speak up for human rights. He says that's who we are and goes on from there. And what I think he should have done was just speak up for human rights. But what he did was told the story about how he spoke with the president of China about what he was going to say about the Uyghurs and human rights, which is a big difference. People may want to criticize what I'm saying as bending over backwards to give Joe Biden the biggest benefit of the doubt possible, and I'm going to preemptively disagree with that criticism should it come, because, first of all, I think that my interpretation is the fairest interpretation. It goes along with his administration's stated policy, the stated policies of the Secretary of State, uh, everything he's said in the past, and it doesn't seem that he's giving an indication that he's changing any of that. He just does such a bad job of framing it that he opens the door to misinterpretation or in all likelihood, in many cases, willful misinterpretation. But it's not all roses. I actually have an extremely critical perspective on this. I think that what he is saying is that we must stand up for human rights, and that's what I'm going to do, and that's what our administration is going to do, etc. But when he tells this story about speaking with the Chinese president— about why china does what they do and they have the one china policy and it's because of this cultural history of theirs about when they are attacked from the outside or when they're vulnerable from the outside it's because they have internal conflicts and so they have a policy to try to unify the country through cultural genocide and brainwashing no big deal right And so he's explaining their perspective. But then he says, but look, I'm the president of America, and we have a different cultural history. And it's because of our different cultural history that I have to be critical of this. That's where it gets gross. So people are interpreting that as he's excusing what China is doing, because it's it's just a cultural difference. But I think it's sort of weirder than that. It's not that he's excusing what China's doing. He's explaining that his criticism is practically performative. That it was discussed ahead of time with the Chinese president. He explained to the Chinese president that, look, as the president of America, I have to be critical of you on this subject. And he finishes that clip by saying, and, you know, he gets it. The president of China gets it. So, like, they've come to this leader's agreement. You're going to do your cultural genocide, and I'm going to criticize you for it, but you see it as worthwhile to do that in the face of my criticism, and I'm not going to go to war with you over this issue, so I'm going to do my duty and criticize you. You're going to do what you feel is right and ignore me, and we can all just roll along. And that is in effect, the American policy on cultural genocide against the Uyghurs in China. So the framing of the critics that I have seen seem to be willfully misinterpreting what Biden is saying and and, and framing it as though he does not criticize them. He's decided that it is not to be criticized because of his terrible framing and phrasing of what he was trying to say. Reading deeply between the lines in in a way that I do think is genuinely fair, but necessary to read between the lines because of how poorly he is speaking, which is actually another topic to be touched on. Can we all agree that it is not a good thing that the President of the United States cannot speak clearly enough so that it is not open for interpretation whether or not he is in favor or opposed to cultural genocide? It's just not a good thing that he's not that clear. So, having had to read between the lines, I conclude that he does think that it's terrible what China is doing. He does think that it's cultural genocide. He is critical of it. But then, because he's Joe Biden, he doesn't just say the things he's supposed to say. He tells the whole story behind it. And the story behind it is what we should really be focusing on, which is that, it has been agreed upon that we will criticize and you will ignore, and that's the end of the story. Now, just to finish off, here's the rest of that clip.
14: I, I said, and by the way, he said he he gets it. Culturally, there are different norms at each country, and they their leaders are expected to follow. But my point was that when I came back from meeting with him and traveling 17,000 miles with him, when I was vice president, he was the vice president. That's how I got to know him so well, at the request of President Hu, not a joke, his predecessor President Hu.
0: Can you believe he felt the need to make an Abbott and Costello reference while discussing cultural genocide in China?
14: President Hu and President Obama wanted us to get to know one another because he was going to be the president. And I came back and said, they're going to end their one-child one policy because they're so xenophobic they won't let anybody else in and more people are retired than working how can they sustain economic growth when more people are retired
4: when you talk to him though about human rights abuses is that just is that as far as it goes in terms of the US or is there any actual repercussions for china
14: well there will be repercussions for china and he knows that what i'm doing is making clear that we in fact are going to continue to reassert our role as spokespersons for human rights at the UN and other other agencies that have an impact on their attitude. China is trying very hard to become the world leader. And to get that moniker and to be able to do that, they have to gain the confidence of other countries. And as long as they're engaged in activity that is contrary to basic human rights, it's going to be hard for them to do that. But it's much more complicated than that. I, I sure shouldn't have tried to stalk China policy and in 10 minutes on television.
0: So there's our guy, steward of the American empire. If there ever was one, I think it's the, the role he's been practicing for, for decades. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. that is going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to dion clark and aaron clayton for their research work for the show thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio ben dan and ken for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together thanks to amanda hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets activism segments and so on and so on and thanks of course to those who sign up to become members or purchasing gift memberships for the show at bestofleft.com/support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, by using our referralmatic system at bestofleft.com/refer